So it's our uh, it's our last Sunday before Christmas. And our fourth Sunday of Advent. I'm very grateful for uh, everybody that stepped up and came up and did our reading and our opening prayer this month. Um, also grateful for Lee, week after week, coming up and handling our prayer requests for us. And uh, most of all, I'm grateful for the privilege of gathering with all of you every Sunday and, and worshiping together. <clears throat> this morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 1, which I'm sure in, in any other church is where you would have started the Advent month. but that's where we're going to finish it. Matthew 1, I'll read 18 through 25, but before I do that, let me pray one more time. Let's go to the Lord together. Our great God and Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves. We pray that you would help us to be mindful that what we're doing here is not about us, but it is about you, about you, Jesus and about your work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. So as we hear your word and as I preach, we pray that you would make us um, malleable. We pray that you would loosen stiff necks and soften hard hearts as only you can through your word and through your ministry. We ask for your blessing on our congregation, we lift up those who can't be here because they're sick. We pray that you would heal them and strengthen them as we get closer to the observation of Christmas. We pray that you would keep all those who are going to travel safe and bring them safely back to us. And we pray that you would help us over the next week um, to find time to really demonstrate love for one another. As we look into this narrative and are reminded of your birth, Jesus, would you send your spirit into this place to work in our hearts? We pray in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter one, verse 18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, shall, he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's talk uh, first thing this morning about the hypostatic union. 
Those of you uh, who've known me for a while know that uh, periodically I have to put on display that in spite of my lack of a seminary education, I know almost all of the pointy head uh, theological and doctrinal terms. And hypostatic union is one of them with which I'm familiar. Some of you aren't familiar with it. What it means is, or what it describes is, the fact that Jesus Christ is 100% divine, he is God, and he is 100% human and mortal. He's both. He's not 50-50. He's not kind of sometimes one and kind of sometimes the other. He is always both, and theologians call that the hypostatic union. It's important because he needs to be both. The reason that he needs to be both is what I'm going to unfold for you right now, and I'm going to do it by asking a question. Why couldn't Jesus be just a man? Well, when Adam sinned, back in Genesis 3, the character and nature of mankind was fundamentally altered for the worse. It was corrupted. The nature of man was corrupted by sin. And I'm going to demonstrate this three ways if you're keeping notes or you want to keep track. The first way that our nature was corrupted is our capacities or our capabilities were permanently diminished, reduced, all right? The way that we see this is from the time that Eve and Adam sin and eat the fruit and violate the law of God, they no longer have the ability to choose to never sin. They are forced from that point on to always choose sin when given the opportunity. And someone, someone will object and you'll say, wait a minute. Now, people that don't know God do good things all the time. And I'll say to that, all right, if you're looking out the window, you shouldn't be. You should be looking at me, um, Sam. So I'll say to that, let's define good, right? Because it's true. We see people engage in philanthropic endeavors all over the, the earth and it makes it into the news. And sometimes as a Christian man, I'm a little bit ashamed that the church isn't doing more when you see how much some of these billionaires are doing for those who need good done to them. But if you define good the way God defines good, what they're doing is not good because good is defined as doing the right thing the right way for the right reasons consistently. The right thing done the right way for the right reason consistently. So the Bible describes mankind this way in Genesis 6, 5. Just before the Lord finds or puts favor on Noah, he makes the decision to wipe out all of the living creatures on the earth. And it says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord looked down and beheld that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that the only intention of his heart was only evil continually. And that's not hyperbole. The Lord saw that, then that's what was going on. So let's look at Psalm 14 together. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. 
There is none who does good, not even one. So let's walk through this. First, what's the first thing they do? They say there is no God. That's step one, being a sinner. And this, this goes back to the fall. We'll see this in greater detail in a moment. Second, they are corrupt. This means that they have a willingness to act dishonestly for their own gain. People are corrupt and they have a willingness to act dishonestly for their own gain. And everybody who's ever raised a child knows that's true. And you also know if you've raised a child, you're looking in a mirror every time your kid sins against you, right? Because that's what you do with the Lord. Your child says, I have no parents, and they're willing to do things for their own gain, which are dishonest. And nobody had to teach them that. Then the third thing it says, or yeah, third thing it says is they do abominable deeds. Um, This is not a word that we use very often, except around this time of year when... um, yeah, is it Rudolph? Yeah, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, reindeer. Um, there's the abominable snow monster, right? I think it's monster. He's a yeti. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, <laughs> it's not very fair, though, to waste the term abominable on the Yeti from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because he actually ends up being kind of a gentle soul. Um, The word actually means that they engage in deeds which cause moral revulsion. So they're engaged in things that are morally revolting. make you sick to see. This is behavior which flows from corrupt character or nature. And then finally, Psalm 14 says, there is none who does good. So, This is what's missing. What is there in a corrupt human heart is morally revolting. And then what is missing there is anything good. So that's pretty stark terms that the Bible uses to describe humanity left to ourselves. This is the outcome of the fall. Human nature is corrupted and our capabilities or our capacities to do things are diminished from being able to do good to no longer being able to do good. Second, our desires have been corrupted. Our remaining desire has become singular, I would say, and that is self-exaltation. So again, if we go back to the fall, what's the lie that the devil uses to get Eve to take and eat from the fruit? It's curious how this works. Sorry, this fever, cough. (laughs) Just kidding, I'm joking. It's curious how this works. The devil says, has the Lord really said you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So he overstates the case. And Eve correctly responds and says, no, 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 God didn't say that. He said we could eat from any tree of the garden except for one. And that in the day we eat of the one, we'll die. And so Satan says, you're not going to die. God's just afraid that if you eat that, You're going to become like him. And he's intimidated by that thought. So Eve's like, oh, makes sense. And she eats. So this is the foundation of our sinfulness. This idea that we are worthy of worship the way God is worthy of worship. So our remaining desire, if you strip everything else away, as corrupted, fallen, sinful people, our remaining desire is primarily our own glory or self-exaltation. In Romans 1, 
Paul summarizes this this way. In Romans 1, 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Guess what we don't have? Eternal power or divine nature. Right? We can see that God has that just through an observation of creation. Without the word of God, you can see the divine nature and the eternal power of the creator. And the more that science uncovers about how things work, the more obvious it becomes there was a creator. But what do we do? We suppress that truth in unrighteousness. No, 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 no. It was a cataclysmic coincidence. That's how all of this happened. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's apt description, right? And here it is. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, image bearers, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We were not, listen to me, this is so important. We were not designed to bear the weight of human worship. It's not what we were made for. And this is why our unslakable need to be admired produces inside of us so much anxiety and anger and strife and then ultimately fear and shame and guilt. We're not made for it, but we want it. We want people to admire and love us. And that has its roots in our original sin. Third, our destination has become fixed. So first, our capacities have been reduced. Second, our desires have been corrupted. And third, our destination has been fixed. The Bible is clear that those who suppress the truth are bound for eternal punishment, which is separation from God. But listen to this from R.C. Sproul. I don't think I've done this to you all yet, where I just read what somebody else said. Please pay attention, because I think it's really important. And I realize you're just looking at this as I'm reading, and I'm sorry about that. Hell is not so much the absence of God as the consequence of his wrath and displeasure. God is a consuming fire and his righteous condemnation for defying him and clinging to sins that he loathes will be experienced in hell. His condemnation will be experienced in hell. According to scripture, hell is unending. There is no biblical warrant for speculations about a second chance after death or an annihilation of the ungodly at some stage. So hell's forever. And it's where you will forever experience the consequences of your sin. Those in hell will realize that they have sentenced themselves to be there because they have loved darkness rather than light. Refusing to have their creator as their Lord, they preferred the self-indulgence of sin 
to self-denying righteousness, rejecting the God that made them. General revelation confronts everyone with a certain evidence of God. And from this standpoint, hell has a basis in God's respect for human choice. So those who would say that predestination removes human agency need to understand that everyone in hell is there because that's where they want to be. They make that choice. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All receive what they choose, either to be with God forever or to be without him. Those who are in hell will know not only that, they're do, that for their doings they deserve it, but that in their hearts they chose it. So while they're there suffering, they're going to be aware of how they got there. It won't be mindless suffering. The purpose of the Bible's teaching about hell is to make us turn with gratitude to the grace of Christ that saves us from it. For this reason, God's warning to us is merciful. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn and live. And I would add, hell is the ultimate destination for all who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ because they will die in their sin. So, to review, as a result of the fall, our nature was corrupted. We see this in three ways. Our capacities were diminished. Our desires were made singular. We want to glorify ourselves and our destination was fixed. That's what happens when the character of the human heart is corrupted. Which hell-bound, sin-loving wretch who is incapable of obedience was going to save us from that? There is no human that isn't born in the same cursed state. We cannot die for our own sins, much less the sins of anybody else. Hell is not going to satisfy the wrath of God. That's why it goes on forever. But Christ did for all those that believe in him. Thus, God had to become a man, possessing both the divine nature and the human nature in order for us to have any hope of redemption. Second question. First question was, why couldn't Jesus be only a man? Second question is, why couldn't Jesus be only God? Why does he have to be both? For God to provide obedience to God is insignificant. Um, If he can't sin because there's no will above his own to transgress, then whatever God desires is good by definition. So everything that he does is his will. And there's no authority above him to judge him and say, that's wrong. So everything that God does is therefore good. So God is always in obedience to his own will. He cannot be a transgressor because he cannot violate his own will, nor can he have sin imputed to him because he's God. And everybody would laugh and go, yeah, you didn't really sin. It's not like you can say that you did, but then that that would be a lie because he didn't. God cannot, therefore, provide substitutionary obedience or atonement for sin. Second, for God to die in man's place is insufficient. Think about it this way. If you vaccinate your cat 
against feline distemper, it does nothing for your dog. Right? If you have potholes in the road uh, outside your house, replacing your driveway doesn't do anything for the road. Buying a new phone does not fix a leaking roof. God dying does not correlate to man's need for a substitutionary atonement. There's no connection there. It was man who sinned, so it must be man who dies. Jesus had to be both man and God, fully each, in order to redeem mankind from sin because human nature could not provide the obedience required by God and God could not provide the death required to pay for our sins. This is why verse 18 of Matthew 1 is significant. Look at it. The birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary provided the humanity God provided the divinity, and this is important. There was no sexual activity involved here. This was a miraculous conception, immaculate, sinless conception. Second half of 18 says, um, Before they came together, her and Joseph, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Why is this idea so attacked? This idea that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Why is it so attacked? Because it's ridiculous. That's why it's attacked. Did you know, this is interesting. I bet you didn't know this. 1% of all women who are found to be pregnant outside of wedlock claim that it happened without any involvement from a man. 1%. Now, that amounts to, I think, 700-something women per year in America. That's just in America that claim immaculate conception. The problem is they are mistaken. The New Mexico whiptail lizard, the zoo plankton water flea, the nine-banded armadillo, sea sponges, uh, bonnet-headed sharks, these things are capable of reproducing asexually. Aspen trees are capable of reproducing asexually. But humans are not. It takes a man and a woman. And I'm not going to get any more weird than that so your children are safe. The common retort to the absurd biblical claim that Mary was a virgin, the most common retort is simply, sure, Mary, sure. And this is the retort that I get when I'm trying to share the gospel with lost people. Hence, Joseph's response in verse 19. Her husband, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's worth pointing out (coughs) that Joseph's righteousness prompted him to act in a way which would bring the least shame on Mary possible. Contrasted with all of those religious elites in John chapter 8, who managed to find a woman who was engaged in an act of adultery, but couldn't find the man with whom she was doing it and wanted to stone her. Joseph was indeed a righteous man. Because while he was going to put her away and release her from the engagement, he was going to do it quietly. Verses 20 through 24 
if you were worried we weren't making enough progress. As he resolved, wait, yeah, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Unlike in the case of Mary and the shepherds who were visited by angels while they were awake, Joseph is visited by an angel while he is asleep and has a vision. Um, it's not that important, but I do want to point it out. People have different experiences with God, and he certainly leads and guides and directs all of us in different ways. However, that leading is always consistent with his word. In every case, the wise men, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, what they were told were things rooted in the word of God. The revelation was consistent with that which had already been given. So please do not be the kind of fool who thinks you're going to get a revelation from God that doesn't also find its roots in his word. I don't care if you're awake or asleep when the angel visits you. If what you tell me it said isn't consistent with the word of God, that was no angel. The three facts which the angel shared are thus. Joseph should go ahead with his plans to wed Mary. You want to know how long it took me to come up with that sentence? Too long. Because I kept going, Joseph should go ahead with his plans to marry Mary. And I was like, oh, wed. It's another verb. Second, the child Mary carries is not the result of infidelity. That's what the angel tells Joseph. If an angel tells you that, and your wife is pregnant, he'd better have some word from God to root that in. Mm-hmm. Right? And he does. The child should be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This word is the Greek equivalent to Joshua, which means God is salvation. Then, and it's hard to tell, right? Because we don't have punctuation in the original Greek. It's hard to tell if this is still the angel talking or if this is just Matthew adding his commentary, but there's this reference to Isaiah 7.14. Again, the revelation has its roots in the word of God. Personally, I think this is still the angel talking, okay? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. There is a mountain of credibility offered to this narrative by the fact that Isaiah prophesied that 800 years before it happened. And the only thing that, you know, secular commentators can come up with to explain this is, well, parts of Isaiah were clearly written after 70 AD. No, they weren't. Uh, We know that these texts have been around since before the inception of the Roman Empire. A second name is here given, Emmanuel. The teaching portion of this sermon is about to come to an end, and the preaching portion will begin post-haste, all right? So stay with me. A second name is given, which is Emmanuel, and this means God among us, or more literally, with us is God, okay? Let's recap that. 
Joseph should not be afraid to take Mary as his wife. That's first. Application. You ready? I know this is why you all love me, because I can do this part, right? An angel is sent from the throne to speak to Joseph. The primary goal of speaking to Joseph should be to let him know that his betrothed is with child by the Holy Spirit. Are we all in agreement? That's why the angel was sent. So look really closely at verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, what are those next three words? Do not be afraid. The angel does not lead off with info about who Mary is carrying. The angel leads off with comfort for Joseph's fearful heart. And that should tell you something about the heart of God towards you. I don't care how old you are. We are little kids who get scared. Always. No matter how long you've walked with God, there is still, when things aren't going the way you hoped that they would go, it ignites fear in you. Look right at me. The heart of God is to tend your fears with the gospel, but not in any other way. Don't be afraid, Joseph, to take her as your wife. Second, the child is of the Holy Spirit. This means that the child will have both a human and a divine nature. Hopefully I've explained that. Can I get an amen? Oh, fantastic, because I was ready to go back. He should be named Jesus, which means God saves. This means that this child is the promised Savior. Amen? His name is also Emmanuel, which means he is the fulfillment of the promises of God throughout the Old Testament. His name will be called God with us. That means that in Jesus, listen, this is significant, but it doesn't make it more significant if I say that it's more significant. So you have to listen to it and hear why it's more significant. Otherwise, I'm just going, this is significant, right? (laughs) What this means is that in Jesus Christ, the full glory and character of God in heaven was walking with and talking with and dealing with sinful people. What that means is that this is the undoing of the curse of Genesis 3 because the result of sin when Adam and Eve fell was the corrupting of the human heart and nature so that a separation was created between us and God to the point where in Genesis 6, 5, God looks down on the earth and he sees that the only intent of the heart of man was only evil continually. Why, oh why, would God condescend to walk among those people? Unless he's merciful. Unless he is made up of mercy. This is the gospel, right? We went over this a couple of months ago. God created and it was good. And God commanded for our good. And then we sinned and broke both creation and the communion between God and us. God immediately promises a redeemer and says, I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to do it through a seed of the woman. This is God keeping that promise. Mary is pregnant in immaculate conception because God is keeping his promise. Now, the clarion call of the Christmas story is not 
what are you going to get on Saturday morning? The clarion call of the Christmas story is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? That's the question that you will answer on Judgment Day. It's not going to be God rolling out a scroll of all your sins and you giving an excuse for them one by one. It's going to be God saying, what did you do with my son who I told you I am well pleased with? That's primarily what's going to happen. So let's consider what the experience of Joseph teaches us. God's plans are disruptive. And we should learn to be glad that they are. In every case, Mary, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Joseph, the wise man, Herod, and even as we saw the shepherds, what God designed was a huge disruption for what they had planned. They were doing one thing, God had another plan. uh, Proverbs 16.9 says, excuse me, that the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I am suggesting that we can see this truth in three ways within the Christian Christmas narrative, all right? The first way that we can see that God's plans are disruptive is that he disrupts, listen to me, he disrupts our capacities, which were corrupted by the fall. Mary didn't plan on being pregnant, and she certainly was not capable of carrying the Son of God. But God disrupts that. And now she is carrying the Son of God. Joseph did not plan to take a pregnant Mary as his wife, and it wasn't in his abilities to do so. This was not a man who wanted to be shamed for the rest of his life. The disrepute of such a thing was more than Joseph was capable of bearing. That's why he made the decision to put her away quietly. The Lord steps in and disrupts his capabilities. And what happens as a result? He takes her as his wife. In the same way, All of us who have come to faith in Christ can testify, I used to only have the capacity to do what was pleasing to me, but now I have the capacity to do more. Mm -hmm. Second, God disrupts our desires. Zacharias didn't want to believe that he was going to be a dad. He didn't want to believe that he was going to be a dad, and he got silenced for a few months as a result. Mary did not want to give birth in a stable. The wise men did not want to travel 800 miles. That was a dangerous proposition. Herod, Herod, rather, did not want to give up power. Jerusalem did not want to be troubled. The shepherds didn't want to be heralds. Joseph didn't want to be a stepdad. Matthew didn't want to give up tax collecting. Nathaniel didn't want to believe that anything good could come out of Nazareth. Peter didn't want to give up fishing. We know that because he went back to it in the end of John. The scribes and Pharisees didn't want to hear anything out of Jesus. The chief priests didn't want him teaching or doing miracles anymore. Peter didn't want to admit that he knew Jesus anymore. Pilate didn't want to get involved. Simon didn't want to carry the cross. The centurion didn't want to think that he had nailed the son of God to it. Mary didn't want to watch her son die. Joseph of Arimathea did not want to face Pilate and asked for the body, but the word of God says he gathered the courage 
Mary Magdalene did not want to go to the tomb on Sunday morning and find it empty and wonder what they had done with the body of her Lord. Peter and John didn't want to hope, but they couldn't help it. And John says, the disciple who loved Jesus saw the empty tomb and he believed. Thomas didn't want to buy the story, but God had other plans for all these people. And he has other plans for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the point of the Christmas story. It's funny how our desires have changed. In Psalm 37, 4, David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And when you're 12 and you read that, you go, okay, that's how I get what I want. I delight myself in the Lord and he'll give me whatever it is that I want. PS5, new guitar, fill in the blank. But when you're 41 and you read that passage and you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you read it and you go, thank God my desires have changed. And he's changed them because I'm delighting in him. I don't delight in me as much as I used to. I mean, I still weigh too much. The Lord disrupts our capacities, disrupts and changes our desires. And let's hear it. He disrupts our destination. I'm not going to hell. I know in my heart of hearts I still deserve to, but he has so worked it in the Son of God that my penalty has been paid and I'll be with him for eternity. That's the point of the Christmas story. Jesus showing up changes all of that. So our first Advent Sunday was called Anticipation. And we went back to the Old Testament and worked our way forward to the beginning of the Christmas story and saw how the promises of God as you get closer and closer to Matthew, reveal more and more and more about the promise for a Savior. It gets more meat on it with each, with each passing uh, book chronologically, right? But this anticipation was building until finally Jesus was born. Our second Advent Sunday was called Condescension. And we saw in the shepherds how Jesus Christ condescended to be born in utter poverty. And we saw the accessibility that we have as the worst of sinners to him because of that condescension. Our third Advent Sunday was called Adoration. And we saw how God had to go find some men 800 miles away and bring them to the stable so that somebody would worship and adore and lavish gifts on the King of Kings. And now we seek to follow their example, right? So this Sunday is called Implication. The conclusions we can draw from the Christmas story are this. God disrupts the lives of sinners. And I'm so glad that he does. He changes our capacities. Look what you've done since you came to know him that you never could have done before you knew it. He changes our desires. Look what you want now. I always say, you know you're a Christian if you have two desires, because lost people only have one. In Galatians 5, Paul says, the spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit, so that you may not perfectly do the things that you please. Paul says in Romans 7, I'm not doing the things that I want to do, but the things I don't want to do, I'm doing. That's Christianity. I have a desire to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and I still have this remaining corruption, and the two are in battle with one another all the time. You want to know how you know you're a Christian? You have both desires. There's assurance found there. 
He's changed our desires, and then finally, he's changed our destination. So many of the people in the Christmas story will be with us in the life to come. We'll get to ask them about it, if you know it. If you don't, I'm begging you, give Jesus a fair hearing. Let's pray.